Welcome to the A-Level Politics Show. And today we are taking a break from the general election in the UK. And we are going across the pond once again. And we will be focusing on the presidency. Is the US president an imperial president? Now, what exactly is imperial? What does it mean? Well, there are a number of facets. An imperial presidency is characterised by excessive secrecy and high-handedness with Congress. That is, it is dismissive of Congress. It tries to get round Congress. It is associated with an abuse of power or illegality. Um, And also presidents who are imperial make use, the full use of their direct authority and constitutional power. So it's not just illegal activity, but um, the full use of their legal power as well. It is associated with, but not limited to, foreign affairs. Now, the opposite of the imperial presidency is something called an imperiled presidency. Now, an imperiled presidency is a president um, that is not very powerful, uh, that um, will be uh, held in check by the other institutions, branches of government and by other factors too. It is associated with essentially three things, and that is increased congressional assertion, increased oversight of the president, the limited use of direct authority and constitutional power, and um, the constraints upon that president's room for manoeuvre, particularly in foreign affairs. So, to discuss this question, it is important to consider the president's constitutional powers that are associated with imperialism. It's also important to discuss their informal powers that allow the president to stretch their power. And, of course, along the way, we will be looking at evidence of imperial and imperiled presidencies. What is the direction of this podcast? Well, I will argue that there are too many constitutional constraints to allow for an imperial presidency. Informal powers can greatly assist the president, but only up to a point, and a point that falls short of imperialism. The ability of presidents to act imperial fluctuates and depends on a number of factors. Therefore, the idea of an imperial presidency is overblown. Let's look then at the Constitution and the powers that are related to this idea of an imperial presidency. And really, we have to start with the president's commander-in-chief powers. They are the most likely to help the president meet the criteria for an imperial presidency that I spelled out at the start. It is associated mostly with wartime and post-wartime presidents, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon. All of these presidents carried out secretive missions, some even illegal ones, for example, Nixon's bombing of Cambodia. Some critics have argued that Clinton bombed Iraq in 1998 to deflect attention away from the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Now, that has never been proved, but it is perhaps an example of how presidents act uh, with secret motivations. George W. Bush's anti-terror legislation appeared to indicate the existence of an imperial presidency. It allowed for covert surveillance, phone tapping without a warrant, and was passed by Congress in less than one month. 
Obama's killing uh, of bin Laden and his actions in Libya may qualify as imperialistic. The former was performed without any approval or knowledge from Congress, and the latter involved ignoring it altogether. Now, Trump may well have used his access to world leaders to further his own business interests. These examples point to excessive secrecy and abuse of power and dismissiveness of Congress that characterise an imperial presidency. However, the stronger argument is that constitutional checks on the president prevent imperialism. Um, checks on commander in chief powers remain. Congress uh, has the right to declare war, not the president. Even in situations where war was not declared, Congress would often vote on giving the president power to execute military action, like in Iraq in 2003. And so it is unlikely that a president would would have been able to execute that war without congressional approval of some sort, even if it was short of war. In 2013, Obama was forced to drop plans to bomb the Assad regime after a chemical weapons attack um, because of the extent of congressional resistance. Um, and that became clear and Obama therefore dropped uh, those plans. The Supreme Court as well. Let's not forget there's, there's not just the Congress as a check on the president's power, but also that other branch of the federal government, the Supreme Court. It limited President Bush's authority to convene military tribunals for suspected terrorists in Hamden v Rumsfeld. Um, all presidents since the war have wanted to do things in the international arena, but were prevented from doing so. Clinton wanted to take a tougher line on the Bosnian Serbs in the 1990s, but the EU prevented him. So the checks come not just from uh, within the US as well, but from the international situation uh, too. So these examples that I've just mentioned uh, all constrain uh, the manoeuvre, the room for manoeuvre that presidents have, particularly in foreign affairs, uh, which has perhaps, with these examples, shown the resemblance of an imperiled rather than an imperial presidency. So just as a mini evaluation, then, when we're looking at commander in chief powers, the use of full constitutional power is dependent on a number of factors. Obama had to deal with a partly divided government in 2013 when the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives um, and the Republican Party uh, were eager, quite frankly, to embarrass him and were not going to give him the authority that he craved uh, to take the action he wanted in Syria. Yet Bush Jr. was given a relatively free hand after 9-11 to use his commander-in-chief powers as a result of his high popularity in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of um, the 9-11 attacks, which demonstrates actually the extent of imperialism and the extent of the president's power largely depend on a number of factors. In Bush, Bush's case, it was his approval ratings. In Obama's case, it was um, having to deal with um, a divided rather than united government for most of his time in office. So we have looked at the president's constitutional powers, most notably their power of commander in chief, uh, which is closely associated with this charge that we have an imperial presidency. And we've come to the conclusion that there are too many constitutional constraints from other branches from elsewhere around the world and that there are too many variables affecting the power of the president to really call them imperial when it comes to constitutional powers that they have. Let's now look at their informal powers 
Um, and I'm going to start with executive orders. Now, executive orders are not actually mentioned in the Constitution um, and the scope of their use is defined by convention. Executive orders are essentially ways with which presidents can make things happen um, without asking Congress to make those things happen. Now, critics allege that they are increasingly used by presidents not to facilitate the implementation of existing law, um, for example, giving guidance of how a congressional law might uh, be enacted, um, but to create new laws um, and to usurp the role of Congress. Now, Trump signed a raft of executive orders in his first 100 days, including on loosening Obama-era policies on environmental protectioning, um, executive orders that weaken the support and promotion of Obamacare, um, and on various executive orders on immigration. Before him, Obama said that he won't wait for Congress um, and passed executive orders on a raft of issues in 2014 when Congress wouldn't give him what he wanted. Um, he also, in 2015, introduced federal gun restrictions using an executive order when it became clear that Congress, again, would not vote for that. They can also use signing statements. Now, signing statement, um, a signing statement is a written declaration composed by White House lawyers offering the executive branch's perspective, now critics would call it spin, on the legislation to which that signing statement is attached. They've been used to direct executive branch departments and agencies on how or even whether to implement a law passed by Congress. Bush Jr., used one of these signing statements to back away from the spirit, if not the letter, of anti-torture legislation that had been the subject of great debate and much controversy in Congress. Now, this use of informal, direct authority demonstrates a willingness by successive presidents to bypass Congress. And bypassing Congress is a characteristic of an imperial presidency, a presidency that tries not to work at all with the legislature, but tries to get round it and do their own thing. However, there are limits to the use of this informal power and this direct authority. Executive orders can be nullified by congressional legislation or judicial intervention. Obama's DAPA program, that's Deferred Action um, for Parental Arrivals, was ruled unconstitutional and Trump's travel ban faced a difficult time in lower courts. Executive orders can be rescinded by successors, that is to just simply be overturned by another executive order. The Mexico City rule that forbade awarding development aid um, on family planning projects has been introduced by GOP presidents and ended by democratic ones. Excessive use of informal powers or direct authority is often illustrative of a president that lacks the capacity to persuade Congress rather than of a president that is all powerful and imperial. So in my mini evaluation, when we look at informal powers and direct authority, I would say the use of these types of power um, likely increases when there is divided government um, or when there are national events that required it. Um, we see Bush Jr. after 9-11 um, signing statements uh, attaching those two uh, bills 
um, pertaining to the war on terror because he had a particular view on how that war on terror should be uh, prosecuted. He believed it was uh, a national emergency. Uh, he described himself as a war president and therefore uh, needed greater leeway to prosecute that war on terror and therefore justified um, the executive orders and the signing statements that he um, um, actioned. Um, and again, all of that demonstrates how presidential power is not one that resembles imperialism, but one dependent upon a host of factors that affect their capacity to act. So if you have divided government, Congress is not going to let you do as much as you want. Therefore, you're more likely to resort to signing statements and executive orders or going to the country to try and persuade um, the people uh, to tell their members of Congress to vote the way you want them to. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily show that you're imperial. Actually, you act that way because of the constraints that are put in place, whether that be um, a hostile Congress um, or national emergencies that might require a different style. Let's look a little bit more closely at the factors that affect a president's power. Arguably, factors such as popularity, national events and unified government can create the conditions for an imperial presidency. High approval ratings towards the end of Clinton's term in office um, owed much to a strong economy, and that meant that Clinton was able to survive impeachment, where he was accused of abusing his power and thus acting imperial. High approval ratings for Bush Jr. after 9-11 meant that Bush could push through the Patriot Act, which allowed wiretapping and created the environment for so-called enhanced interrogation. And that involved potential illegality and unchecked executive power, the trappings of imperialism. Bush Jr. enjoyed also a united government for much of his tenure, allowing him to prosecute two foreign wars without much scrutiny, a characteristic again of an imperial presidency. National events as well need to be considered. 9-11 boosted Bush Jr.'s authority, giving him a mandate to operate as, as I said before, a war president that involved excessive secrecy and high-handedness with Congress, uh, two phrases that I associate with an imperial presidency. However, the strongest argument that none of the factors that I've mentioned help presidents become imperial forever uh, none of those factors are fixed. And more commonly, these factors restrict the president from remaining imperial. Bush Jr. left office with very low approval ratings, reflecting a t final two years of a presidency in which the Iraq war became a drain on his, on his credibility. He was therefore arguably imperiled in his last two years in office, or what some people would call a lame duck. Thus, popularity can create the conditions for imperialism but it is not a fixed condition and popularity or lack thereof can create the conditions for an imperiled presidency. National events also may scupper the president's agenda. Hurricane Katrina affected Bush's image of competence. Tackling the aftermath of the credit crunch stole much of Obama's early political capital and resulted in the emergence of the right-wing Tea Party that helped um, really beat the Democrats quite easily in the 2010 midterm elections, ushering in a final six years where Obama had to deal either with a partly divided government or fully divided government. And what's more, a Republican Party that was far more ideologically opposed to him and not likely to give him any um, of his policy suggestions. 
divided government from 2011 really hindered Obama's chances to pass more meaningful reform on immigration. Yet even when he had united government, Obama struggled to convince his own party to close the Guantanamo Bay detention centre um, that is associated with the war on terror. Trump um, is uh, being investigated um, for um, using his political contacts, um, putting pressure on a foreign president uh, to help him in a domestic political campaign. Um, the Ukraine investigation is all about that. Trump is likely to be impeached uh, over the coming days and weeks. Congressional assertiveness is back and therefore the likelihood of an imperiled rather than imperial presidency going forward. Now it is back because Trump does not control the House of Representatives. Um, it is the Democrats that control that branch. You probably would expect Trump to survive impeachment given that the Republicans control the Senate and that's where impeachment trials are hurt. But nonetheless, um, this whole process has damaged uh, Donald Trump's credibility. It does actually smack of an imperial president that he has been accused of abuse of power using his office, putting national security at risk uh, for the sake of uh, finding dirt on his political rivals. All of that characterises secrecy, abuse of power, um, associated with an imperial president. But what makes this not an imperial presidency is that he's been found out and he has been taken to task over it. An imperial presidency is often an imperial president who gets away with things. And it is unlikely that Trump will get away without being impeached. Um, and then, of course, it will be up to the voters to decide probably uh, whether he will be removed from office, as I doubt the Senate will actually follow through with that. Nonetheless, we can't really look at Trump and say, yeah, you're all powerful because clearly he is not. His approval ratings are pretty low um, and have been throughout his time in office. Um, he didn't win a huge mandate to govern. Hillary Clinton won more uh, votes um, nationally than he did. Um, and um, arguably, he has not handled uh, events particularly uh, well. Uh, when we look at the Charleston um, uh, far-right killing of uh, civil rights activists, um, he uh, basically said there were blame on both sides, um, and that really um, hurt his uh, standing in the country. So the US president uh, needs a capacity to persuade, needs a certain set of skills to remain powerful for a long time, and most importantly, need circumstances to work in their favour. I would argue that for George W. Bush, uh, he didn't necessarily have the capacity or the skills to remain powerful, but he had the conditions. He had high approval ratings after 9-11. He had the national emergency that was 9-11. Um, and um, he had a united Congress uh, for much of his time in office. But even with him, um, you know, things uh, got bad pretty quickly um, once Iraq started to go horribly wrong and weapons of mass destruction were not found. Perhaps his own secrecy, um, his own abuse of power when it comes to um, potentially being economical with the truth over whether uh, there were any uh, weapons of mass destruction came back to bite him. And that is the thing with power. Um, it is not is not fixed, especially in democracies. It constantly ebbs and flows. Um, it it constantly fluctuates. And therefore, the idea that we have an imperial presidency is simply incorrect. We hope you enjoyed this show. Um, and if you did, please do have a listen to our back catalogue. There are so many shows now. I think we've done 31. 
and there have been around about 13,000 downloads or streams of this show since we came on air a few months ago for series two. We will try and do a podcast during the Christmas period. Um, But if not, don't worry, we'll definitely get ourselves uh, back onto it in January and keep doing as much as we can, perhaps one a week uh, from then until um, your exams in May or June. Until the next time we see you, I hope you have a wonderful break, well-deserved break, holiday period. I know your teachers will be telling you to work hard, but I'm telling you to relax and to recharge your batteries. And I'm also telling you to have a wonderful Christmas and even better new year. See you in 2020, if not before. Enjoy the general election too. Take care. Bye-bye.